Welcome to podcast number 18, my conversation with juggling sensei, Matt Hall. Before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors for today. The first one is the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. And of course, all the past episodes of this podcast can be found on the eJuggle section of juggle.org. Also, my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. If you're thinking about being a professional, you're already a professional, working on custom material or trying to increase your creativity, come to me at braindrizzles.com and see what coaching can do for you. Now, enough about the sponsors, a little bit about my engineer, Karen Holzman, because without her, this would not be possible. Sit back and enjoy the wisdom of Mr. Matt Hall, the juggling sensei. I'm very fortunate today to have a great guest, a personal friend and a wonderful juggler. A big hand for Mr. Matt Hall, the juggling sensei. How you doing, Matt? Hi, how you doing, Dan? Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. You and I go back quite a ways, but let's go back all the way to the beginning. So like a juggling superhero, what is the origin story of Matt Hall, juggler? I would start probably with me watching the Flying Karamazov brothers on, I believe it was their Showtime special, maybe HBO, but I think I think it was Showtime off Broadway. That show I saw when I was eleven. I watched it that day, and it just blew my mind with Terror Terror Object Number Three and Terror Object Number Four, and then they were doing simple passing with torches and you know in a five person feed kind of thing with the person in the middle. And juggling with xylophones, cigar boxes, egg juggling, just some of the classic juggling kind of techniques and performance skills and tropes, but it blew my 11-year-old mind. And that day I taught myself to juggle three balls. And had you been aware of juggling before then? I mean, did you, or was it actually your first experience of, oh, juggling? My first experience of juggling was pretty much that. And so I think it was a pretty good experience to start with. It blew me away. It really just made me think about, gosh, I want to learn how to do that. You were able to learn just by watching or did you did you pick up a book or have someone show you or just kind of puzzle it out yourself I, I figured it out it took me you know a couple hours to figure it out in my bedroom with some baseballs I had baseballs and I figured it out and then I once I had learned it I said okay move on I was I was into BMX racing at that time I, I raced BMX from like the age of 11 to the age of 16 I went to the world championships in BMX when I was 12 I was into surfing and bodyboarding. I, you know, I was on a bodyboarding team at, in, my, in my school, surf team. Those were the things that I was really into. Juggling, oh, I want to see if I can do it. I was, I've always been kind of a guy where I, get, I want to test myself to see if I can do it. So once I learned how to do it and I knew how to do it, I said, okay, blah, whatever. And I didn't pick the balls up again for another 14 years or so. Oh, wow. So you learned at 11. And we're talking about like maybe 1980, 81, around there? Exactly. All right, so you put them down. You, you said, okay, here's a challenge for me. I'm going to learn to juggle. I watched this this Flying Karamazov Brothers. So what happened 14 years later or whatever it was? What, what re-inspired the spark? There are a couple of things that happened. When I was in Japan, somebody gave me a homemade flower stick. And so I once again wanted to see if I could learn how to do it because I saw some people doing like a propeller spin with it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's, it's magical. It's weightless. And so I, I learned how to do like an idol and a propeller and that was just something I was doing while I was living in Japan, something fun in my you know spare time. Once again, I was still riding BMX then, flatland BMX, you know, kind of like X game style, half pipes, that kind of stuff. I was still into bikes. I was always into bikes. But when I did the flower stick, I was like, this is cool. It reminded me of how cool juggling and manipulation arts are. And then later, just before I left Japan in, in 96, 
I met a guy named Brian Hersey who showed me Mills Mess and how to do four balls at a workshop for teachers in Japan. And just over the course of that weekend, I tried a little bit. He had some actual bean bags for juggling. I wasn't using baseballs or tennis balls. He actually had juggling bags. I think he had like Fergie's, I think, which is awesome. And then I, I could do four balls a little bit, and then I kind of put it away until I got back to the United States in 97. And what brought you to Japan? I know you've uh, had a lifelong love with the Japanese culture and language, and you're a Japanese teacher. What started that, and how did you get to Japan at that time when you learned from uh, Brian? Well, the first, the first thing you should know is that I read the book Shogun by James Cavell when I was like 13 or, four, 13 or 14, right? Shogun. Yeah. And it's, it's a fictional book, but it's a great book. It's a great yarn. Lots of great historical kind of anecdotes. And so I read that and I wanted to learn Japanese, but I had to wait because at my high school, they only offered French, which I took for four years. So when I got to college, I signed up for Japanese. And then my sophomore year, they sent me to Tokyo to spend my sophomore year at university in Tokyo. Then I came back for that and got hired after graduation to go back to to uh, Japan and work. I was there for about three years working for the uh, Fukuoka prefectural government in their high school division. And then... That, that led to a job eventually in Chicago at the Japanese consulate. And I was there for two years. And that's really what changed my life juggling-wise because every day at the consulate during lunch, I'd go walk around the city or across the street and get something to eat in the water tower place on Michigan Avenue. And the, in the what do you call it? The, the Sharper Image, WTTW Store of Knowledge. They had more balls than most, uh, a box set from uh, more balls than most, which is like Butterfingers in Britain, box set with a video. And I bought that plus Charlie Dancy's Encyclopedia of Ball Juggling. And that was it. That's really where everything changed for me. Yeah, that book became very important to you, and you set yourself a goal. Can you tell us what that goal was? My goal, once I started, I, you know, I knew I could do a couple tricks in it, obviously Cascade and, and maybe a four-ball fountain for a little bit. I didn't even realize that all the tricks had names, and it, it goes through them A through, A through Z. So that's what I resolved to do. I said, I'm going to learn every trick in this book. I'm going to try and do it in order, but... Obviously, I ran into some tricks I couldn't do right away, so I skipped them and then came back to them later. But eventually, I had a little pencil check mark next to every trick in the book. Now, you're kind of known as a guy, a, a multi-prop artist. And at this time, are you just doing basically balls and maybe a little bit with the flower stick? Or have you started to experiment with other props as well? Yes. When, when I was in Chicago, I went to the Naval, Navy Pier, which is kind of a touristy place. And they had a kind of a magic juggling kite store there. And I saw a girl doing a Chinese yo-yo there. And she was just doing some basic tricks, string climbs and stopover, string re stick releases and suicides. And I was like, oh, I got to get that. So I bought one of those and, and really was spending most of my time on balls because I had the encyclopedia of ball juggling. And I spent my time on the Diablo. Those are the first two. I kind of put the flower stick aside for a while and came back to it later. And it was a flower stick, not a devil stick. It was a, the, sort of the softer cloth cover type. Exactly. It was homemade. So I think it, had, it was a wooden dowel covered by a cut-up bicycle tube, like it was rubber. And then she had used cloth, just little bits for the end flower part. Soon after I got into juggling for real in Chicago, I bought myself a couple Dubai hardwood devil sticks. And that was, those were a lot tougher, but they looked a lot better. And that's what I've used all, ever since. And anybody out there in Chicago? I know I've been to Chicago, and I remember Tony Flowers was out there. I'm not sure what years. But any other jugglers around starting to inspire you? Any gang that you started to juggle with? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Tony Flowers, he was the king of Oak Street Beach. I met him. He was the first person I met down there when I started trying to attend the group meetings. Rhonda Horwethel was from that area. She talked to me into going to my first festival in 98 at Stevenson High School. Mickey Simple, right? Mike Simple, he's a great performer in that area, a great regional performer. He took me under his wing. We had some great practice sessions. He's always been a great guy and was very helpful with advice. 
even early on when I was just thinking about going on the streets and performing on the street. Those three really stick out in my mind. Now, so you're saying that Stevenson was your first convention. Was that a, that wasn't an IJ? Was that just a local juggling convention? Local fest. And it's funny too, because I was working at the consulate. So I had access to the internet dial up, right? 1997, 98, broadband speeds. And I, I discovered the JIS, the Jugging Information Service. Through that, I started looking at the list of clubs and where they met and festivals and what's going on with festivals. I saw some pictures. You really couldn't even download videos at that point, right? Maybe, maybe if you're lucky, some animated GIFs that were like one megabyte of people doing tricks. So that was my exposure to juggling through the internet. And I remember finding the listing for the Chicago Juggling Club, which essentially was the club that met on Oak Street Beach on the weekends. And I called Rhonda Horwettle because she was the name listed. It wasn't Tony Flowers listed as the contact. It was her phone number. I called her like on Friday at the consulate and said, hey, I want to come to the club. I want to come to the meeting. She goes, well, believe it or not, tomorrow literally is the Stevenson Festival. Why don't, instead of going down to Oak Street, we're all going to be at Stevenson High School. Why don't you drive out there and check it out? And it blew my mind. <laughs> uh, so who was out there? Anybody uh, come from out of town? Any, any names we'd, we would know nowadays? Yes. I, I remember that Jay Gilgan, I believe, was there. It might have been the second year or third year I was at Stevenson, but he – he, he figures prominently in, in my early memories of juggling, and, and the first time I ever saw him live and took workshops from him was at Stevenson. So that, that's, a, that's a huge name, obviously. I mean, he's still the guy and still strong in the game, you know? Mm -hmm. And that I remember the first time I walked into the Stevenson kind of field house, and the first thing I see is Michael Ferguson doing eight balls and Peter Caseman doing three Diablos high, when I could do one Diablo and four balls, and it just fried my brain. But I loved it. I was I was soaking it up. Multiplex Dan taught me my first five ball multiplex tricks, and that and the, so when I left that fest on Sunday, just exhilarated and exhausted, I would say to myself, I can do five ball. I'm a five ball juggler now, even though I couldn't do the five ball cascade yet. Now you're known pretty much as a hobbyist. Was there any time during this early experience with juggling that you thought I'm going to try to make this as a living, or was it always something sort of a sideline to your main teaching career? Exactly. It was always tangential to what I was doing, either working for the consulate or after working at the consulate, I moved out back out to Northern California to go to Stanford and get my master's degree and become a teacher. And then I became a teacher. The closest I ever got to professional, I guess you could say, was that summer of 2000 when I had just finished my degree at Stanford and I was working in the Great America a theme park, a amusement park in San Jose, Santa Clara, right? Right off the 101. Mm -hmm. They paid me and a guy named Chris Carson to go and perform in the lines while people were waiting for the rides or warm up the crowd before the actual sh dance show or the singers went out on stage. Ten bucks an hour, juggling every day, all day. I loved it. It was fantastic. It's funny. That sounds like my first job. I was uh, 17 at Magic Mountain. Uh, so I was born in 61. So we're talking 78 or so. $10 an hour. And I entertained the lines, entertained before the shows. I did eight sets a day, so 80 bucks a day. So, oh. yeah, those amusement parks are good gigs. You certainly uh, experience sort of what it's like to juggle, whether you feel like juggling, whether whether the people feel like watching you juggle. Right. At that point, it's a job. Yep. And you're out there doing a job. I started also kind of getting an idea of, of routining and structuring the routine for applause and and really thinking about it more than just trick, 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 trick. I didn't, I didn't go so deep because I didn't have to – I wasn't – working for Cirque or, or some other artistic endeavor. It was just people sitting in the line waiting for the tilt-a-whirl, right? I still worked on it, and, th and those routines that I developed at 
Great America were the ones I used in my first IJA tryout when I tried to get into the IJA championships in 2000 in Montreal. And was that your first awareness of the IJA was in 2000? Yep. Well, I certainly, I, I'll, I'll say two things. My first awareness came from when I was in, back in Chicago. Tony Flowers lent me some of his old IJA highlight tapes. Mm -hmm. that, uh, the VHS tapes we still yeah, have. Yeah, Plotkin, you know, the, the classics, sure. right? The 96, 97, 94, 92, 89, 88. I think my earliest one I had was 88. And then I, I got myself, I got every copy of every tape up to current now, pretty right. much, either DVD or VHS. But those early VHS ones that I, and I couldn't keep them because they were Tony's, so I was dubbing drastically. I was using the the consulate equipment to dub tapes and they're like what are you doing i'm like nothing nothing D don't <laughs> don't worry about it <laughs> and i was dubbing all these ija tapes so i would just watch those religiously over and over and over until i almost wore out the tapes so i knew a lot about the ija and about the championships and the competitions and the games and and who the names were and who the faces were i knew you before i met you i knew the passing zone and i knew about uh the Raspini brothers and i knew about jay gilligan and i knew about ben jennings and all these different people who i'd seen in the highlight reels but then I first went to the IJA in 2000 in Montreal. My, my wife and I, Lisa, we went there together. I tried to compete. I performed in Renegade. Had a had a blast. That was a great first year. Yeah, and that was the year um, Michael Motion was at the festival, if I believe correctly, and he gave that famous talk about uh, his contact juggling. Was that something you attended? I don't believe that was the year. That was okay. the year that... Uh, 2000 was Montreal, and it, Mike Price won the championships. Jason got second. Garfield got second. And then the main talk, or, or I guess the guest that year, was uh, Albert Lucas. He's the one who gave the master workshop. Okay. I think the Michael Motion one is the previous Montreal, which I believe was in 92. That's what I'm thinking of, yes, 92. So we were talking about... Montreal in 2000. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. so, so you're saying Mike Price. Yeah, there's a name that... Uh, yeah, haven't heard in a while, right? I think he was on America's Got Talent a few seasons ago and, and mostly works cruise ships, from what I understand. Right, right. Now, so when, when did you start getting involved? So you started, you say, you, you attempted to compete that first year. Was that, did they have video tryouts or did you have to go in like in a separate room? I remember they used to have you. Yep, it was all live. You had to do it, you got one shot. They've got a couple of prelim judges. You just do it, you don't do it. No matter what, I remember actually vividly being out there on stage doing my act, which was just, it was... Three balls and cigar boxes and one Diablo. I Because I wanted to be like Jeff Mason in the 88 tape because he won with three balls, three boxes, and one Diablo. So that was my routine forever. That was the, mm -hmm. that was the routine I performed at like my first juggling festival performance at Madfest in 98, 99. So I just did that. No, no staging, no costume. I just kind of went out there and did it to music. I think it was like Pick Up the Pieces by Average White Band or something. And I was doing my routine and Jason Garfield was coming on next behind me. And he was doing Five Club Backcrosses backstage and he shattered a light. And you hear this crash and you hear Jason <laughs> screaming and yelling and shouting. And that's during my tryout. And I was, ah! <laughs> and I finished and then that was that. But I remember watching the finals from the audience that year and just going, wow, man, if I'm going to get in the finals, I got to, I got to keep working. So you always wanted to compete. Was that something you saw that kind of drove you to get better? Or you always had that competitive spirit. Was that from BMX? Yeah. I've always been kind of a competitive guy and just trying to, I always did individual sports more, moreover. I mean, I did baseball and soccer early on when I was a kid, but for the most part, when you, when you, when you do BMX or surfing or breakdancing, it's all individual, individualistic sports that pitch you more against yourself. And what are your limits? 
Mm-hmm. So juggling fits the bill perfectly. I just wanted I, I wanted to get into the finals. That was the goal all along, just to see if I could get in the finals because that would be cool to do your routine in front of everybody instead of just doing it in front of three people, right? And I remember Bob Nickerson being uh, a good old hand, giving me advice. He told me, he's like, hey, man, you know, you got you got the juggling skills already. You, you don't even have to get any better at juggling. Just work on your pro, you know, work on your presentation. Work. Do you have a prop stand? Do you have a, a costume? Do you have an idea? Do you want to? Tell a story. What are you doing? And so I went away from 2000 with that advice and came back in 2001 with a much more kind of artistic piece. Crouching juggler, hidden Diabloist. And I spoke Japanese and I had a costume and it was Diablo, mainly Diablo in cigar boxes, no toss juggling. And then when I didn't get into the finals that year, they took me aside and said, you need to work on some more juggling. You need more toss juggling. You need more technical skills. I went, okay, I'll try and figure something out. And then did you have a streak where you did a a bunch of IJs in a row? I mean, because I remember you were pretty much a fixture from my memory from when I first saw you to like, okay, you became a real part of the community. So did you go like to a whole bunch in a row? Just about, yeah. I would say from 2000 until, gee whiz, 2000 to 2007, that was unbroken. I believe, or I might, uh, no, I apologize. I missed 2002. Like I always have these one gaps. Like I missed 2002. That was the debut of Ryo Yabe when he won as a junior. And then I missed 2008. I seem to always miss the, the even years. I missed 2008. And then 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, I, I went strong then. And then I've missed the last three, actually, the one that's coming up in, in, in uh, Quebec. It's, it's amazing the sort of the, the journey we go on through the IGA, how first everything is, is new and, and we're, we're unknown and then we become sort of names ourselves. Yeah. But then at a certain point, either you start working or, or your real life takes over with your job, like with your teaching, mm-hmm. and you say, well... I'm a juggler now, and it's important for me to go to the conventions, but it's important for me to work and have a real life as well. Now, in these early conventions, now you met some of the key players, like uh, Robert Nelson, and I know you certainly soon got involved like in Renegades and things like that, and also the, the sure. workshops. Exactly. What did you think about this crazy community, and who are some of the people who really influenced you in your early IGA experiences? Well, you mentioned Robert Nelson. I gotta, I've got to go back to him again. In fact, I'm wearing his memorial shirt right now as we, uh, we can't see this, we're, we're Skyping, but. Yeah, those are available at the Buskers Hall of Fame. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. he's the guy. Yeah. Who, he's the guy who, who convinced me to jettison a, a routine I had been working on for a long time in 2002, 2003, and go back to my roots and, and, and be, a, be a, just be a juggler and be a break dancer and be a B-boy, be who I was and, and stop trying to be someone I wasn't. At the time, I was working on kind of a club bounce routine, wearing all black. I was even growing out a beard to be darker. I was, using, <laughs> I was using the music live, which Jay Gilligan used in his EJC performances. I was basically just trying to copy Jay's, right. that kind of artiste style, where no smiling, no this. And, and I performed it at the Seattle Festival. At that point, I was getting invited to a couple festivals. And I went to the Seattle Festival with that routine. I'd already been to the F- Seattle Festival a couple times, the first one being in 2000 uh, with you. We did some tennis ball in Cannes. But then when I went to the 2002 festival, I did that dark routine and just sucked. It was horrible. And I came backstage really dis- disappointed. And, and Nelson was there, and he took me and Rootberry out for drinks afterwards. And we, he was like, let me just tell you some stories, man. And we, we just sat there and did shots. And, and he told us all the stories of his failures and some really funny, funny stories. And then he just looked at me and said, why, why are you doing what, what you're doing? you got to be you. i got to be me, and you got to be you. So after he gave me that advice, my wife said, well, you know, you break dance. Why don't you try and mix break dancing and, and juggling and, and use the music that you like to listen to when you're juggling? And 
So that eventually became the routine that I used in 2003 to get the silver medal. And that was, that, like I said, all that ties to Robert Nelson. You're someone who gets invited to a lot of festivals. How did that happen? Was it because people saw you so involved in the different aspects? I mean, normally you would think that the festivals would go after maybe what they'd call a name professional. Right. But here you are, basically a hobbyist, but you became sort of known as a guy that would improve the festival. If you invite Matt Hall, he will make the festival better. Not just the shows, but just the hang, being with the people, doing the workshops. How, how did you sort of start this journey that took you to so many conventions as a guest? I would, I would say that it's, it, started, it started around 99, 2000, when I first got invited to Stevenson. Stevenson actually invited me to come back after I'd been in their show once, and then they invited me to come back the next year, and they said, well, we'll, we'll pay for your gas or something, you know, because I still lived in Chicago at the time, but I was like, an invitation, that's great, and we'll, hey, we, and if we make some money on the door, we'll give you 50 bucks from the show, kind of thing. I was like, that's <laughs> awesome. That's incredible. Right. And then I got invited to the Coeur Fest. Remember David Grove? I, I did that once in, uh, in Idaho. I did that once as well. And great fest, right? That was a wonderful fest for about five, six years. David Groth mm -hmm. uh, was he was a player in IJ, right? He was running the U Showcase for a long time, and he had the, his version, not the Jugheads, of course. That's Paul Arnberg and his wife Wendy. David invited me out to Coeur Idaho, to, to be the main guy at their small festival that was just starting. It was like the first year of the festival, and he asked me to be the headliner, and I just laughed and said sure whatever you want man. <laughs> right. the answer is always yes brother you know you want me to sweep the gym i can do that too it's not a big deal so that's how it started it because i went to that fest and and in quarterline idaho it wasn't i was definitely a, a larger fish in a smaller pond so he wanted me to teach workshops and then he came to me and said all right you're gonna close the show and i went of course that's what you invited me for and he said well also we're gonna have renegade after the next night can you emcee that maybe and i went yeah sure so my understanding of what it meant to be a guest at a festival i think started there and then I started kind of using that as the template by which I would either talk to other festival organizers and say, hey, if you're interested in getting somebody to come out, I could, you know, I can, this is what I can do. This is what I offer. And I'm not looking to make money. I think that's another thing that helps, certainly. You know, like you say, I'm the best uh, festival invite in my price range because I usually don't ask for a lot of money because I have a career. I have my own money. But I, don't, I just don't want to lose money, right? Give me a place to crash. Give me some food. For the most part, that works for me. Now, you're known as a very good workshop leader. Can you give us a couple tips, like what makes a good workshop, and if someone's doing a workshop in the future, some things they might want to do to make it better? Certainly, and it, and it all ties to the you know the training I received at Stanford as being a teacher, things about differentiating your instruction so that different skill sets, right, heterogeneous skill grouping as they call it. If somebody's in your workshop that came there that's just a beginner, if I'm teaching a Diablo workshop, usually it's going to be a more advanced level, but if I can come up with uh, easy version of the trick I'm teaching and maybe a little slightly harder version and then the actual version of the trick that I want to teach and scaffold people to to success with each one of those tricks then everybody walks away with something so you want it to be hands-on you want it to be differentiated you want it to be kind of organized and and focused on the student not just about you I'm that's something I definitely changed over time in in my work, workshop mentality and philosophy because when I was early on in trying to teach workshops, I was also trying to prove what a stud juggler I was, that I was the guy that earned the right to teach the workshop and that I'm teaching the workshop because I'm such a great juggler. That changed more and more to making sure that everybody walked away with being the best juggler they could be, that ultimately that's what people loved about the workshops. And so I did that. And to that end, I also started creating these handouts and worksheets that whenever I go into a workshop now, so people are going to walk away with something tangible in their hand, a piece of paper or a download 
that they can use to review the workshop material because not everybody can remember everything. Not everybody takes notes the same way, but I'm going to have the entire itinerary of our journey, our entire lesson plan laid out and just give it to you at the beginning and then people can follow along at their own pace. And that's another thing, pacing. You want to make it user-friendly so that everybody can follow along and not get lost. And for the most part, I, I feel like I've had a good time doing those things. You also had some teaching experiences uh, outside of the IGA. One that strikes me as interesting is you were able to coach for Cirque du Soleil. Uh, what was that experience like? I have to give uh, thanks to Steve Ragatz, who once again was another IGA kind of player. He, I read his articles on the, uh, on the juggling information service way back in the day. And I, I can't remember. I think we met at like the uh, Urbana Champagne juggling festival way back in 1999 or something at Chris uh, LaRue's house or something. But I met Ragatz and then we just kind of would com commu communicate with each other every once in a while, digitally, electronically, through email and so forth. And he, I mean, there's a guy who knows the game. He was on, he was with Kidam and then he asked me in 2006 to, to go to LA where he was. I was up in Northern California. He said, come on down to LA. We'll fly you and Lisa down. And I want you to kind of school these Chinese girls who are from the Beijing circus in the new style of Diablo. Because at that point, 2003 to 2006, that's when the Mad French Posse and everybody else and some Japanese players really revolutionized Diablo, where it changed irrevocably with everybody starting to do three Diablos low and start doing Vertex or Excalibur, you know, the horizontal style play. None of these girls knew any of that. And I was in there kind of at, at the ground floor with Mad French Posse because I had been with them at the 2003 EJC in Svenborg, Denmark. So I was there with them and kind of keeping pace with them for a while. They soon left me in their dust, of course. But, you know, I knew the stuff. I knew the methodology. I had the new hotness. Yeah. So Steve, Steve brought me down to teach the girls in Kidam. We came down for a weekend. They, brought, they let us hang out backstage. We trained them on the off days for just a day or two. And then that was it. But then in 2011... He, arranged, he was still back with the tour, and he said, well, why don't you, I want you to come out again to Sacramento. I want you to drive out to Sacramento, meet us during that. I'm going to teach you. Now we have a new show with a new Diablo act. It's still Chinese girls, but now it's not 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds. It's 18 to 23-year-olds. We've kind of changed the music. We've changed the costumes. We've changed some of the tricks. We've added Vertax and Excalibur and all this different stuff. I want you to come out and look at it, give us some more feedback, and maybe show us some new flavor, just like you did in 2006, because that helped us change the show in the five years since then. So I did that, and it went so well. They said, dude, you just need to come out, meet us on tour, and hang with us for a week or two in Providence, Rhode Island. And then you also coached, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the story is, but uh, with the passing zone, were you there cigar box coach for their for their cigar box routine exactly that was in 2006 as well like 2006 was a great year right i get the passing zone gig i get the cirque gig the way that worked out is that john and owen were working on they wanted to do a cigar box routine in their corporate show and they asked jeffrey damon and i to come and meet with them and first it started off with jeff damon and i seeing what was possible between partners with cigar boxes because it hadn't been tested too much like double trouble had done a lot of stuff i think prior to that but that was back in 80s, I think, 87, 88, 89, 90, I think, if I remember the IJ video. Damon and I, at that time, in 2006, we had already, 2005, we had had our great cigar box battle at, at Davenport IJ, and he was still one of the masters, one of the, the godfathers of the whole prop. So he and I really pushed the limits to see what we could do. And then John and Owen looked at all that and said, all right, throw 90% of that away because we're not going to be able to get, pull that off. But we also discovered a lot of fun little tricks and quirky things that worked for John and Owen. So then I came back down a couple times after they, we had given them kind of the basic structure and I worked with each of them on their personal technique, 
then we worked on a routine together, and eventually it became what they currently use now in their shows. Yeah, it's a very, very good routine. And of course, it also shows you the professionalism and the work ethic of the passing zone to actually bring in coaches to help them develop a routine. Exactly, yeah. Everybody, you know, if you look at any sport or kind of high skill level endeavor, you've got people coaching other people, players in that sport, music, art, whatever, chess, I mean, everything. And these guys are no different. They put Lisa and I up and we stayed with John one time. I stayed, when I came down, they stayed, I stayed with them again. They, they paid me some money, but they also were kind enough. They said, you might be a juggler if this funny little bit they did. Mm, yeah, yeah. 2007 IJ, right? When they were hosting. Yes. They, they said, you know, part of your payment, Matt, you can use that anytime. You, we know you're getting into the MC game. Use that with our, <laughs> with our, with our, with our blessings. And, I, and that's been great. So I've used that a lot. Like, like when as you walk in, the first thing you do is you look how high the ceiling is or... Yeah, exactly, exactly. You you might be a juggler if you've had more than one ping pong ball in your mouth and then, you know, the stuff like that. Do you know the whole thing? Can you give us at least three or four that maybe... Uh... Oh, yeah, without question. I've, I've pretty much got it memorized. Like, yeah, if you walk into the Sistine Chapel and you look up at the ceiling, that beautiful painting and say, I bet I could throw a Diablo really high in here. <laughs> right. Or if, you, if your ceiling is more scuffed than your floor. Yeah, if you've ever purchased more than one chainsaw at a time. You might be juggling. I got you. Yeah. If you've never, <laughs> ever paid for a car with $1 bills, you know. <laughs> so now, so you, you, you became an MC and you did a lot of MCing at these different conventions. So let's yeah. talk a little about these these foreign conventions you've been to because you've been to Australia, you've been to, to Israel. Now, if I had to put you on the spot and sort of pick like three or four of your favorite festivals, can you tell me what they are and what makes a festival good in the Matt Hall opinion? There's been a lot. I mean... Between 2000 and, and now, 2015, Australia three times, New Zealand, Mexico, Israel twice, Britain three times, Scotland twice, Canada once, Netherlands. I'm just thinking about places I've, you know, and they're all fantastic. They've all, I, they're stuck in my memory how good they were. But if I really had to kind of pick a top five, I would have to say that the EJC have been fantastic. Both times I've been, I've only been twice, but both times I've been really lucky. And I've heard of EJCs that weren't as good, that maybe the location was off or the organization didn't work out. But the two I went to in Svenborg, Denmark, and in Karlsruhe, Germany, right, 2003 mm. and 2008, were perfect. They were, in terms of weather, organization, size, energy. I mean, the one in Karlsruhe was 6,000 plus people. It was the biggest juggling festival in the world at that time. That was fantastic. Yeah, for the for the IJ members who haven't gone, who only have experienced IJ festivals, the the EJC, going to Europe or going to the, the EJC is certainly an experience that uh, if you hit the right ones, like you, like Matt says, sometimes they're, the weather can be a problem because a lot of it takes place outdoors or the the facilities. To see 6,000 jugglers in one, in one area all embracing this wonderful activity. 10 different languages, minimum being spoken, larger range of ages, a, a greater balance between the genders, which I think creates a much different vibe as well. Let's be honest, IJ is what? 90-10, maybe 80-20 if we're lucky in terms of male to female yeah. ratio. I, I think at the EJC it was like 55-45 or 60-40, maybe even women to men. I mean, more women. And it creates a different vibe and you've got more, more props being represented. Obviously, if you've got more people, you've got more skills being represented. So you got to, that's like going to Mecca. One, one of these times in your life, in your juggling life, if you call yourself a juggler, you got to go to an EJC. That's top. Yeah, I think there's more jugglers. Maybe the, the per juggler skill level is less than the IJ. I mean, maybe the, on the per juggler basis, the IJ jugglers are perhaps 
stronger technically, and there's probably a bigger sort of flow community of hula hooping and poi. And also just sort of more of like a, people who embrace new circus. So it almost seems like sort of a more Burning Man vibe where it's about the community and the overall aesthetic of the activity than just, hey, let's juggle in this gym space and have our competitions. Yeah, ironically, it's, it's, it's the difference I see between a performance-based community and a competition-based community because every night at the EJC, you're going to have, have an open stage. And even though, though they call it open, it's really like a, a gala show because they've got so many people who are, you know, between 6,000 people, you can find 12 acts a night that are polished and good from just pick each country and you can have 10 people from the 10, 10 best people from that country can do a show. And they've done that before. So every night you're going to be treated to really great acts. And, and that's what motivates people. And every night at IGA, you're treated to good acts that are, but it's part of a competition. So it's, it's a different vibe and a different mindset. You know, we're, we're definitely big into competition. And more sporting uh, feel. And, and like you see more guys like wearing shorts and t-shirts in the IGA, you'll see more people like wearing leopard skin leggings with a vest with no shirt and exactly and and that's not to say that there's not competition at ejc and that's not to, not to say that there's no artistry at iga you can find both at both places but i that's the the impression i've come away with in the two two events that i've actually attended as well as knowing everybody who goes there i know a lot of people in that scene they share their experiences with me or i look at their pictures on Facebook or I talk to them afterwards and they tell me, oh, this was good, this was not. And, it's, and it jives with what I'm saying. And that's certainly one thing you look at, like what makes a great festival is the number of attendees. Like if you go to a festival, like, oh, there was 30 people. Yeah. It's going to be good, but it's not going to be good like, oh yeah, there was 6,000 people. Exactly. If you've only gone to IGA or any, any fest in North America for that matter, where you're really dealing with just three digits, then, yeah. then, then going to a play, an EJC or my next choice, which I'd say is Israel, which is a thousand, two thousand. If you count the families, if you you know, if you count just the jugglers, it's probably a thousand. But if you count the families who come with the jugglers, it's probably three thousand people at that place. Well, the thing about Israel is it takes place in a, in a beautiful camping area, so people sort of plan their vacation and can bring their families because there's like not just juggling, but there's beautiful swimming in these wonderful lakes. Exactly that river. Yeah, that's that's Gan Hashlosha. It's like two hours outside of Tel Aviv. I went in 2006 and again in 2011, both times magical, magnificent, wonderful. The, the Israelis are a wonderful host, great friends, super passionate about juggling. I taught 10, 11 workshops each time I went and just was drained. Anytime, it was supposed to be a 60 minute workshop and it goes for 90 afterwards because even though the other workshops are starting and the guys are looking at you and yelling at you, stop teaching your workshop, we need the space for somebody else. The, the, the people will say, well, just let's go outside in the grass and we'll just keep going because they're so hungry for it and they love it. Yeah, I went to that, I did that one uh, this year actually as the MC, and it was a fantastic experience and a big shout out to Ori Roth and all the organizers. Yeah, Ron Ataski, Ori Roth, all those guys, the Shiltons, uh, Robert Shilton and, and the rest of them, man, they do a great job. They put on a great, a great event. It's amazing. And especially because it's isolated. They have to bring all that stuff in, truck it all in and kind of set it up and get everybody there. They have to get all their guests from, because they invite guests from all over the world. And they got to pick them up at the airport and get them all there and put them up. And it's fantastic. The first year I was there, I was there with Maxime Comaro, Trespass, Get the Shoe. The Hitters, it's a good, good company. Pretty good, yeah. And then me, right? Which one of these is not like the other, right? Well, yeah, so you created this identity of like, okay, maybe you're not going to headline a big gala show. 
Yeah. If you have if you have Get the Shoe and you have Matt Hall, between the two of you guys, I think Get the Shoe is going to headline and you're you're a lesser performance act. But the fact that you were able to kind of create this identity as a, a go-to festival edition, being a hobbyist, you've had such a wonderful run through all these conventions. So we got two. So we have a couple EJCs. Israel for sure. Israel for sure. Give us just a couple more and then we'll... Uh, Move on to our next subject. Okay, uh, then I, I gotta say that the the Australian New Zealand fest. I'm gonna I'm gonna lump them all together, but because they're they are different. Like the Sydney fest in 2006 was great with Mark Douglas and them, and then the Auckland fest this uh, in 2012 in New Zealand, fantastic. That was amazing. I also want to go back to the Melbourne Melbourne with Christian Parr. That in 2009 in Melbourne, that was pretty special. That that was they ran a great fest. Just the Australian Fest in general, and, the, and once again, I don't want to cause any hurt feelings between New Zealand and Australia. Of course, they are different, but the vibe is all, it's just about fun. They're not huge fests. The skill level is kind of low, not super high, not super low, but, it, but everybody just has fun. The, the shows are great. The renegades go forever because everybody's just taking the piss and having fun. I'd, I'd have to put those on the top tier. And then I got I got to say Britain BJC I've been 3 times. I mean I, I can't believe they invited me 3 times but I'll take it and every time was incredible. Fantastic. Great friend. I've got a lot of great friends over there like Ewan Crichton and Rob Stone and the rest of those guys, Mark Armstrong. I, I could go on. Those uh, fantastic people. Now speaking of conventions, you actually ran your own convention. You were the convention coordinator of one of the IJAs. That took place what what where did that take place again? That was in Winston-Salem, our, our third uh, visit to Winston-Salem, yes. Now, what was that experience like for you? I know, and how did you end up becoming the uh, the coordinator? It started out with me being on the IJ board. I, I ran for election in 2010. I believe that was the Minnesota Fest. It was definitely Minnesota. It was 2010. I ran for the board, got picked, so I was on the board. And then right around 2011, when we were looking at, okay, who's going to take the 2012 Fest? It was a year, year before, and... Lisa and I talked about it and said, yeah, why don't, why don't you give it a shot? Let's do it. You've always talked about it. You've got some ideas for performers and how you want to structure things. And so I, I said yes. And I remember at the time, the IJ was paying anywhere upwards between five to eight grand, if I remember correctly. I think Mike Sullivan got something like that for his previous fest. Maybe, maybe not. But I said, oh, yeah, wow, that's a lot of money. I'll, that's, I can do that. But then when we looked at the budget, the we were in the hole from the previous fest. So I basically waived my fee and and did it for free and and that's not to say i didn't get benefits from it of course you know when you're sure. staying i got to, i got to go to the festival for free my hotel room was paid for so I, there was plenty of financial benefits on that end the year spent planning that fest and do, and working on that fest was was a complicated year because i had also switched from my previous high school in east side union high school district san, san jose california i was teaching at silver creek high school for 11 years just doing japanese and i moved to my new high school in palo alto palo alto high school and then I was teaching Japanese, but I was also part of the admin team. I was running student activities, which is like prom, graduation, freshman orientation, all, all the dances, everything like that. And so I, I spent that year both trying to do the festival long distance because it's in Winston-Salem and trying to adjust to my new masters in Palo Alto. And that was a tough year. I, to be honest, I, I think I dropped the ball several in several areas as far as the fest was concerned. But I had a lot of good people to work with on the team, you know, Aaron, Kevin, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those people backed me up, and as as luck would turn out, it it ended up being a good fest. I think, I and mean, we certainly didn't lose money. I think when I last heard from the previous board members who kind of looked at the numbers, we either we either broke even or we made like five grand. I think that was the final 
judgment on that fest. And the turnout was good. Like the number, the numbers weren't huge, like 300, 400 in that area. I think I was happy because it, for the most part it went well. And we had, we were able to bring over some great people. Chief in my mind, right off the bat, Pavel Zvukovic and EAEO, those guys, Jordan DeKuyper and Sandra DeKuyper and Eric Longakel. I, I had, and Ryan Malores, of course, from, from Mad Skills and uh, Ministry of Manipulation. I had worked with Ryan in Guadalajara, Mexico, and we knew each other a little bit. I wanted to bring his act to IGA, so I was happy to be the festival organizer because I can kind of make those decisions and help make those decisions. And then, of course, EAO, I'd seen them at the Netherlands Fest and at IJA. I mean, pardon me, EJC in Svenborg, Denmark, way back in 2003. So nine years later, I was begging them to come to the IJA Festival, and we made it happen. And like I said, their their performances in the Cascade of Stars are still some of the highlights for me from that fest. Let's say you had a festival coming up that you're the director, let's say, next year. Who are some of the dream acts that you think you would bring in? Maybe people that the IJ hasn't seen or maybe they're not aware of or just people who would be passionate about to have them in, in a show. Let's sort of put together a dream show. Let's show. What would the opening act? Who would you think of as a, a great opener for your dream show? Ah, opening's tough. That, the opening's <laughs> a tough one. It's a tough one. I, it's a tough one. I would almost go go so far as to as to put like I had and I and I'm biased of course because I had him in the Cascade of Stars in 2012 when, at my festival. But Doug Sayers, man, I'm always gonna that act of his and his energy and what he brings to the table both at the fest and on the stage. I mean, that's a great opening act. And it's going to pump people up with some really red meat juggling, you know, the balls, the club, the leap from box to box. I mean, that's that's a great – that might almost be too high an opener. But if we're doing Dream Team, then I can pick anybody I want. I'm of course, of course. If I can pick some other people, I think I think definitely uh, Francois Rocher. I still love her artistry. You know, once again, I'm kind of old school. Sure. I wish Luke Wilson was still around because he was the master. I'd, I might probably have him MC. It'd either be him or you MCing, I think. I'd probably put Luke Burridge in there somewhere because he's got so many different things he can call upon. He's got a wide range of skills, and he's he's a good MC. If not in the show, he's going to be maybe the MC, or he's going to he's going to run Renegade afterwards. You know, I, if if I was putting together my dream team, he he's definitely a player. Of course, you got to go with Wes and Tony and Patrick and those guys. I mean, if you don't have those guys, you're going to piss off ninety percent of the juggling world because they're the favorites, right? Everybody loves those guys. Yeah, like in Israel, they did the first, uh, Wes and Patrick did the first half of the show. And they did a solid like 45 minutes of just, and then they came and did, you know, each an individual uh, piece in the second half of the show. I mean, those guys are, they are the future of juggling. And I was very impressed by their their performances and their overall uh, character as, as people as well. They really are carrying juggling into the future very well. Any show I have in the future, I'd, of course, love to have any yeah. of those guys. Got to have them. And then, and then I bounce around all over the place, right? Like Marcus Footner is great with, with mm -hmm. Devil Sticks. Six. You know, if I'm going to pick props and everything, there's... I like uh, Tony Freeborg, you know, with Diablo. With Diablo, he's great. But I like, I just saw another video recently of William Wei Liang. You know, remember him from mm -hmm. WJF and IJA. His stuff now, he's been with Cirque for a while and it's even better. Like he, in my opinion, has got the cleanest solo Diablo act on the planet. But... I'm biased once again. Trespass, that duet, that that's the only Diablo act I've ever seen that made me feel. You know what I mean? That almost brought a tear to my eye. Gandini's, like if, if it's a if it's my show and I got limited unlimited funds, I'm gonna bring the entire Gandini crew and have them do multiple acts. I'm gonna have Sean and Katia do their you know Sensafina act. That act drives me insane. I love it. 
And then, uh, but I've also got, you know, Stefan Singh and Christiana, which we had before as well. Have you ever had uh, Eric Bates at an IJ? Has Eric Bates ever been to an IJ? I don't think he has. That boggles my mind. There's, once again, there's, he's the best cigar boxer on the planet right now. It's not even close. There's some Japanese guys who are very impressive, but when I saw his show performance, his act, yeah, no denying the, the, and plus, with the training and the and the presence he has, wow, Eric Bates. We'll put a we'll put a picture and a link to him because uh, we both love cigar boxes and, and uh, he's the yeah. man. Everybody took it their own way, right? You know, like like I think Jeffrey Damont took it for a while and really and pushed it and ran with it. And and Sean McKinney added his own flavor, that West Coast style that you and me and and Tim uh, Tim Kelly kind of picked up on. We added our pieces. The Japanese, of course, then took it. You know, like Daisuke Hagiwara-san. They those guys with the uh, Ohako, the video way back when they added it, and now the Japanese, I think, are moving it even further. There's more. They've, if you go to a Japanese juggling festival, and I haven't been to one yet, but I've seen enough video and I've talked to enough people, that it's not like there's just three or four or five people at the cigar box workshop or like six people jamming in the gym. It's like 30 people, 40 people all just jamming, and they're all good and they're all pushing each other. I've seen some wonderful uh, Japanese jugglers, the creativity, the, the experimental nature of what they do. With, whether it's shaker cups or, or cigar boxes or it's uh, it's crazy. Watch the ball watch the ball videos on Instagram these days coming out of some of those guys Kota Ohashi I think it is, and yeah it's next it's next level stuff it's really next it's then they're they're combining the best of new and old school sight swap with manipulation with with freezes all kinds of crazy stuff. Let's let's switch to the end now. Who is your closing act? Who is your headliner? Who are you bringing in to be the the big gun, the big gun at the end? Well, once again, if it's a dream team, yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull Anthony Gatto out of retirement and make him do his Monte Carlo act or something, right? The one that that's a good choice. That's one for sure. Or when I think of Get the Shoe or EAO, those guys. And when you're talking the best of the European style that that isn't too esoteric, that nobody gets anything out of it, but isn't too just macho and mm -hmm. postery. Just entertaining, just fun and entertaining. Those those two acts, man. You know, get the shoe and you know Johan and, and, and Florian, and then of course the whole crew from EAO. I can't praise them enough, man. Well, I think it's that combination that we both like. There's this idea of the sort of Albert Lucas, Dick Franco, straightforward style. But then for a while there, you had like when the Peapots came to the IJ or some of uh, Team RDL, where it didn't seem as accessible or, or entertainment based. But then you have an act like Get the Shoe, who who pretty much works a lot of the German variety shows. And it's basically a show-based routine with the music and the sound effects. And when you, when you combine great juggling with this idea of how do we make this as entertaining as possible, you know, given that it's juggling and the parameters of the tricks we're doing, you can come up with some pretty impressive... Like, I like Paul Ponce, I think, is another example of great skill, great movement, and is just a, a, a dynamic, great headliner type act exactly well, like Tuan Lee is another one of my favorites with the hats yeah uh, Ty Tojo I'm, I'm looking at his stuff now it's he's pushing it yeah like if, I, if you can't get Anthony Ty's Ty's starting to kind of fill that void where he's really pushing the numbers and doing some crazy stuff live consistently cleanly you know what I mean that really crisp delivery that he has and then and then what you know and we could have another show that was just all comedy i'm gonna put ivan i'm gonna put ivan there i'm sorry i'm gonna put ivan there he's one of the, he's one of the biggest players right now solo well i always thought they should have kind of like a comedy club night and sort of have like hey here's danger committee and yeah just have a fun night of comedy and of course you you're a big fan of uh team rootberry because those guys you came up with those guys as well 
2003, man. I'll never forget. Reno was magical. <laughs> yeah, that was the year they, you came in what, second or third? I came in second, Bill won it, and then they won teams. Yeah. You guys were all, all hanging out together, and it was a nice... Yeah, we trained together, and they also got the people's choice that year. And speaking of training, let's get to some tips about practicing. Like, what, what sort of a, a Matt Hall practice regime, and what you what have you found out about practicing that you can kind of turn around and tell other people that might be effective to make their practicing uh, more efficient. In my experience, given that I kind of tried to devote myself to, to several props, <laughs> master of several, I mean, uh, you know, familiar with several, master of none, my issue was always finding enough time to devote to each and every prop. Mm. And that was good in the sense that if one got boring, I pick up the other one and really push it hard and play with it. So variety it definitely adds spice. So you don't get burned out as quickly, I think. You don't get bored. But it does prohibit you from progressing if you just want... You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to make a choice time-wise. If you really want to focus on one routine or one act or one prop, then maybe you have to neglect some other props. So that's a choice you have to make. But as far as having multiple props to choose from when you want to practice, that's always good. I think variety and newness keeps us happy and keeps us excited about learning. Even to people who are dedicated to just maybe balls or clubs, why not pick up rings? Why not pick up Diablo? Things like that. You'll you'll have a good time and it'll kind of cleanse the palate, and then you can go back to your actual practice. That's one way to look at it. Two, I had to truncate everything because once again, I'm teaching 12 to 14 hours a day, 10, 10 months a year. I've got a wife. I've got three cats. i gotta, I got to find time. So what I did was, was modify things from other coaches that I knew to work. For example, the pyramid style practice where you're using, doing 25 repetitions or 20 repetitions and 10 repetitions and five repetitions and one repetition of the various number of balls or clubs or what have you. I made a, a mini pyramid that Phil gave me some good practice and a, and a structure, but didn't take as long. It just literally didn't take as long because it wasn't as many throws. Instead of doing 20, 10, 5, 1, I would do something like 10, 5, 3, 1. That chops it down a little bit. That, when, when you're trying to practice a pyramid with several different tricks, with several different props, cutting down, just paring off the fat helps a little bit. So for me, that's a time saver, but it still makes my practice Let's talk a little about this pyramid. Let's say you're going to learn seven balls. So give us an example of how you'd use this pyramid method with something like learning to do a better seven ball cascade. Well, for example, at the bottom, I'd start with flashes. I'd just do 10 flashes of seven balls, seven throws, seven catches, done. Mm -hmm. And then I'd maybe bump it up maybe two or four throws, depending. If I was just really beginning, I'd just bump it up two. So instead of 10, thro 10 attempts of seven throws, then five attempts of nine throws, just two more throws. And then I'd go to three attempts of maybe 11 throws. And then I'd go to one attempt of 13 throws. And I just keep working on that. And that's gonna save me some time because I'm not doing as many repetitions. I'm not just running to failure every time and blasting and having collisions and picking up all these balls. I'm just gonna do it nice and short and sweet. And then when I get to that one attempt, whether I make it or not, I move on. Move on to another pyramid or a different prop and start practicing other things that need time and attention. And as a, a juggler who uses a lot of props, what props do you use? And maybe give us a recommendation. This is, this is a personal recommendation, obviously, but what kind of props does uh, Matt Hall go for, let's say with cigar boxes or devil stick? What's your, what's your go-to company that you, you would uh, suggest for people to try these different props? I've used throughout my 15, 17, 18 years of juggling, almost exclusively Dubai and Henry's for the most part. Certainly Henry's Diablos I've always used, and I've been sponsored by Air Traffic in Minnesota, and they, they're a distributor, an official distributor of Henry's equipment. So when I made the deal to work with Air Traffic, basically the agreement was we're going to use Henry's equipment. So I switched from Dubay boxes, which are fantastic, to Henry's boxes, 
which are a little bit more sturdier. They're also a little heavier, so you got to think about that. But I was using all Henry's equipment as for Diablo and Henry's clubs, of course, fantastic. I'd use Renegade clubs for a long time, and they're good too. They're really sturdy. They make a great club. But I switched to Henry's, and I really like the Pirouettes and the Delphins. The Delphins especially are fantastic. The balls I've always stayed with, even when I was negotiating kind of what equipment I would use for Henry's, I said I didn't want to use Henry's balls. I'm going to stick with Nord's. John Nord out of Texas makes those homemade balls that are fantastic. And I've used those. I've used G-Balls. I started out with Fergie's way back in the day in Chicago. I'd call up Fergie and beg him quietly and gently. But you can't beg too much, otherwise he shows no mercy, right? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I, I started out using Henry's, and I'd call him up and ask him nicely, calmly, may I please have some balls? And he would usually come through, no problem. And then I switched to G-Balls for a little bit, and I went to Nord's. Eventually, John Nord makes a great bag. His website is jugglingthingies.com, I think. You can look it up, and I've used those for at least 10, 12 years. They're really durable, really fun. I've always used those. I'm going to continue to use those. And then other props, Devil Stick. I've always used Dubai Devil Sticks. Like I said, cigar boxes, Dubai cigar boxes, or Henry's for the most part. I know there's some Japanese brands that are actually pretty good. They're a little smaller, and they look really good. Tennis ball and can, uh, Dunlop 4 Championship, Mm -hmm. filled with water. Love those. I got a (laughs) four ball and a can now. So in my act now with my tennis ball, I finish with five object Cascade. That's that's something new, which for me is rare because I have I've been neglecting the practice and juggling in the last couple of years. So learning to do five objects with the can and playing with that has been really fun the last year or so. And then last but not least, kendama shin shin fuji or a uh, mugen. Matt Sweets Jorgensen would know what I'm talking about. That's something worth commenting on is that kendama has blown up. Sometimes you're like somewhere and you see a kid, you're like, oh, he's got a kendama. He's actually walking around with a kendama. Yeah, no, I, my wife and I were down at Disneyland uh, three weeks ago for our 10th wedding anniversary, and they had on Disney, uh, what they call Downtown Disney, which is just a big avenue of shops, avenue of shops, shopping street, and everybody just walks through the thoroughfare, and they have the little kiosks, right? You can get some rings or do this, and the Duncan kiosk was more kendama than yo-yos. And the three or people that were working it, most of the time I saw them using the kendama. And I remember being in Britain in 2004 teaching kendama workshops to the void and all those guys who ended up making the bka and now it's just huge and they're all like the void is like six degree black belt now Hmm. tested in japan he's like the highest ranking white person ever in the history of kendama that's fun too there's very few props that have sort of a ranking system and learn this series of tricks it has sort of a whole methodology that most juggling doesn't have right no it's it's one of the tougher props i've ever used and that's saying a lot given all the juggling I've done with balls, clubs, rings, Diablo, cigar boxes. The kendama is it's tough to perform. It's tough to entertain with it. And it's just tough to execute. Uh, the world championships are going on right now, I think, in Japan. Uh, Sweets from Sweets Kendama, Matt Jorgensen, took like a group of 10 guys over there. And they're there right now just going crazy. All right, so let's, we're getting towards the end. I'm going to give you some rapid fire uh questions we'll wrap it up in a couple of minutes i'm ready okay so mad hall he's on a ship the ship is sinking he can grab one prop out of all the props you do what does mad hall grab i grab the juggling balls for sure got it i'm just gonna go on that desert island and play with sight swaps for the rest of my life how many you need Need nine of them seven of them i'd I'd grab i'd probably grab nine just in case it broke one or two sure just in case or maybe you're on that desert island long enough and you try to go over some long numbers uh numbers runs now of course i have to ask where has matt hall been i mean for the last three or four years you haven't been to a festival and you sort of have dropped a little bit out of sight in the juggling community what's going on matt hall absolutely yeah i primarily life intrudes i think that's the phrase i'd use 
I've, I've been focusing on my teaching at Pali. I moved to Pali partially because I wanted to kind of work on my teaching. In, in a poor di school district, it's hard to work on your teaching because there's no money for training and no money for equipment and, and books and so forth. So moving to Pali, I kind of sold out to the man. That's Palo Alto you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Pali, Pali is what we call Palo Alto okay. High School. Yeah, I, never, I never heard Pali, but I'm not a local there. So. Yeah, moving to, moving to Pali required a, a higher level of commitment from me to be a teacher and to be devoted to my craft as being an educator and being a teacher. And I've paid that price. And I'm glad I paid it because I'm probably a better teacher than I ever have been. I'm starting my 17th year, 18th year as a teacher. I want to spend that last 15 years of my career being a good, really good Japanese teacher and being a good educator. That's the decision I made, and that's fine. And the one thing I regret about it is, is yeah, that it's taken me away from juggling to the degree that where I used to do it. But at the same time, I still got to go to the Poconos Fest uh, that Kim Laird put together. That was a great local fest. Last year, I got invited to the Mad Skills Fest in Vancouver. This summer, I didn't get a chance to go. We didn't make it happen, but maybe next year I'll do that. I got a nibble from Dubai to go perform in Dubai, so that might happen. And then I'm going to the Kansas City Juggling Festival on October 2nd, so I'm still making moves, <laughs> just a little bit quieter, a little... I'm not actively pursuing or writing festivals like I used to, and that was something that I didn't mention before, but I didn't just wait and sit back and wait for invitations to roll in either from international or local festivals. I would often call them, write them, email them, and just say, I don't want to be presumptuous, but if you, if you got the money and this is what I offer, if you're interested, let's let's make it happen. It'll be as long as it's win-win for both. I'm still out there kind of looking at those things. I would love, I'm going to put in a shameless plug right now, Brianza, Italy. If you're out there and you're listening to this, I would love to come to your festival and, and I'll make it worth your while, brother. Well, that's great. And it's, uh, it's so refreshing to hear that you still have passion for it. Like you say, your real life has intruded. You have to sort of prioritize, but you still—I can still hear that. I can still hear the love of juggling in your heart, and that gives me encouragement for the future of all the people who can experience the teaching and wisdom of Matt Hall. And speaking of wisdom, thank you. Let's sum it up with one last word of wisdom from Matt Hall. Do you have kind of a credo that you live by? Anything that you can impart to help uh, up-and-coming jugglers? Certainly. The first thing I would probably say is don't be afraid to ask questions of your betters, of your quote-unquote superiors, because I feel kind of like I've been very fortunate to have friends and mentors and teachers inadvertently or deliberately. People like yourself, people, Luke Wilson, Jay Gilgan, Robert Nelson, all these people, uh, Rootberry, uh, Ivan. The passing zone. These are people who are, I mean, I feel like I'm Forrest Gump and I'm walking through your lives and I'm just kind of peeling off a little piece of learning and wisdom from you guys because you guys are the professionals. You guys are the pros. You're the entertainers. And I have been a hobbyist, let's be honest. But I've never been afraid to ask questions or say, gee, you guys are awesome. Can I ask you a question? And you guys have always been more than willing to to answer my questions or to guide me in the right direction or point, point out something that I could do better. That's always been the case. And the juggling community in general, I think you see that. And that's wonderful. That's number one. And two, of course, tying to the first one, what you receive as a gift, give as a gift. When you rise up, when you get your skills, when you learn that trick, don't forget to teach it to somebody else who's coming up and wants to learn it too, right? Somebody helped me learn five ball mills mess, and now I help people learn five ball mills mess, for example. And somebody helped me get my first gig at a juggling festival, and I've helped other people write those first letters, those scary first letters, introducing yourself to a juggling festival director or organizer saying, hey, can, will you invite me? That, that can be tough. And I've, I've helped some people with that. And now I, I see them and they're out there getting fest gigs. Well, Matt, thanks for sharing your, your time with us here on the Drop Everything podcast and sharing your wisdom with the jugglers. I look forward to seeing you at future festivals and hanging out with you and jamming. Definitely. I definitely look forward to it. Yeah. I'll even come out to Pally. 
<laughs> come out to Pally, yeah. Or, hey, Kansas City, man, it's going to be a great fest, October 2nd. It's going to be a good one. Mm, I think you're on that one by yourself. I got some jobs coming up. But uh, thanks again. This is all the time we have now for Drop Everything number 18 with Juggling Sensei, Matt Hall. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 18 of the Drop Everything podcast. That was my conversation with Juggling Sensei, Matt Hall. I love to talk to people who are passionate about juggling, and no one has a greater passion for juggling than Matt Hall. So thanks, Matt, for being part of the Drop Everything podcast. And thanks also to our sponsors, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. You can join this fine group of jugglers at juggle.org. Also, my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com. For your coaching and career needs, come to braindrizzles.com. A big thanks to our, my engineer, Karen Holzman. To all the listeners, drop everything except when you're juggling.